from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, solar energy gets small. Boston's chief innovation officer on revving up urban mobility, the mainstreaming of ESG data, and get ready for edible plastic packaging from seaweed. Kelp is on the way this week on 350. It's November 3rd, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350, episode 99. I'm Joel McCower, and joining me as always is Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. How are you today? I'm good. How's the view from New Jersey? The view is not blustery anymore. It was pretty, pretty blustery earlier this week, but it is now officially autumn here in New Jersey. Weirdly here, too, in the Bay Area, which is this is October, well, it's now November, but this is still our warmer season, and we're having unseasonably cool. But, you know, it's just the way it's been. It's almost as if the climate is changing. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Yeah. So uh, you survived Halloween? I survived Halloween. Had a lot of fun. It is my husband's favorite holiday. Really? We have hosted a party for 36 years in a row, except for this year, when we went to Atlantic City. So he could show off one of his costumes. And uh, do tell what was it? And <laughs> Mount Rushmore. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he, was he any particular part of it or all well, four? He or? is so he is was he's the Teddy Roosevelt head. Um and then he places this um he created this uh basically model of the other heads and he with uh styrofoam and, and plywood and then he sort of climbs in and straps himself in and he's Teddy Roosevelt, so which I think is fitting because we both love our national parks and um but the, 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 the cool thing is, even though we couldn't have our own party this year, he actually managed to win second place for, the, uh, for his costume at the Tropicana in Atlantic City, which was kind of fun and very thrilling for him. Uh, yeah. Uh, can, I, I have to ask you, why, of all those guys, why TR? Well, partly because you have to really, in order to balance it, you have to <laughs> pick one of the middle heads. And I think he thought that he could look more like Teddy than... <laughs> And Thomas Jefferson, so uh, I think that's why he picked it. It was sort of a practical, a practical nuance. But like I said, he we love national parks, and P.S. We've been to Mount Rushmore. Uh, we've driven our motorcycle up there, and it's just quite spectacular. If you haven't been, so I haven't. It, it is spectacular. So uh, meanwhile, you went to uh, a Goldman uh, conference at Goldman Sachs, or was it a Goldman Sachs conference? It was a Goldman Sachs um, Sustainable Finance Innovation Forum. So. Um, terrific speakers and lots of different topics, basically the, the role of money in um, various things, you know, not just uh, investing like sort of the, the green bonds movement, but also, you know, what money is coming to support clean energy, what money might come in to support uh, the, the utility of the future, right? So has these uh, companies, which their models, you know, how, how do they how do they invest in, in new infrastructure, renewables, the grid, et cetera. So it's just a lots of different topics, which I'm still sorting through um, for our coverage, um, but plenty of different stories. One thing I'm really fascinated by just because of the, the, the general um, uncertainty around bonds is, is the sort of the future of the green bond. So I 
plan to dive into that a little bit. And it's timely because uh, we have added financing sustainability as a track at the GreenBiz 18 Forum and looking at exactly those things of where is the money coming from and all the different mechanisms like green bonds, social impact bonds, social development bonds, and a whole bunch of the blended finance, all kinds of things we're going to be talking about. Um, and um, it, that topic just might show up in the State of Green Business Report as one of the trends. Ah. Uh, yeah. And so, so yeah, this is great. And you'll, you'll report more about the Goldman Conference next week. Absolutely. Lots of, lots of things to write about. So and Next week is our 100th episode. <gasps> uh, I, I haven't gotten you anything yet. but um, uh. <laughs> Well, I, I have to say, I haven't been on all 100 episodes, although I think you may have been, right, Joel? Or almost? Uh, I think I've been on 99 of the 100. I think Unless we've one... allowed you to go on vacation or something. Well, there was one where I was, uh, I believe uh, I was celebrating my birthday in Costa Rica in February this year. And uh, uh, Lauren Hepler and uh, and you, I think, co-hosted. Yes, we did. We um, did. So that is, I believe, my only missing one. So it'll be my 99th, but Green Biz is 100th. So we'll have to figure out. We haven't really, I don't know what we're going to do yet, but we'll figure out something by then. Well, you had a lot of, before we go on to stuff, This we've been talking about Green Biz 18. Uh, people, I want listeners to know that we just updated the program. We kind of had a shell program for our February event in Phoenix um, on the website until Monday. And now we've got uh, not the full program, but a good chunk of it. And you get really get a sense of what's going on. And so, and we're also... Um, Today, November 3rd, is one of the price deadlines. So if you're listening to this and it's still Friday and you want to come, I would suggest you uh, jump on it. Act fast. Yeah. Well, let's meanwhile jump on the Week in Review. Well, you had a lot of stories this week, Heather, as always great coverage. And, and uh, one of them is about Organic Valley's clean power strategy and, uh, and, and sort of how solar is now finally filtering down to some smaller and mid-sized companies. Uh, talk about the story a little bit. Uh, as I've mentioned a couple of times in recent weeks, the movement to procure renewable um, at the corporate level is filtering down into mid-sized companies. So this particular piece um, was inspired by a deal that Organic Valley, the, the dairy cooperative based, if you will, in, in Wisconsin, they signed a, a tremendous, it's not tremendous from a, a capacity standpoint, but tremendous from an innovation standpoint. They're partnering with um, a, basically a local um, municipal utility, a set of, of agencies in Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, and um, Iowa. So they're partnering with this group in order to add 13 megawatts in solar in, the, in this area. So it's a community solar initiative, and it's 13 megawatts worth, right, as I mentioned. Not very big, but big from, a, from the standpoint of this is a smaller company. They're, they're about $1.6 billion um, at, like, in revenue from, the, from the, the farms that they represent. But it's, you know, it's not a lot of capacity, and that's been sort of a sticking point for for people that wanted to do virtual power purchase agreements, you know, they, they had to have a lot of um, capacity that they represented. So it was a, a striking deal for me. And uh, I think we're going to see more of these. And are the deal structures different from what 
bigger companies are, are doing? Yeah, so this one, in this particular instance, it's the municipal, basically they're buying the recs um, and helping support the, the work that the, the municipal agency, the, the group called the Upper uh, Midwest Municipal Energy Group, right? They're, they're, they're buying the, the projects, they're contracting for the projects, and basically uh, uh, Organic Valley is coming in behind to buy the, the renewable energy credits. So it's a, a structure that allows the, the, the UMEG group to help add renewable capacity to their, their services, right? It actually increases, about, increases it by about 12%. Um, and they have got a lot of customers that want to buy clean power. So it, it serves both masters, if you will, um, kind of a, a, a deal that has good benefits for both sides. So Organic Valley is a uh, cooperative. In fact, it's the largest organic cooperative, uh, at least in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, is this kind of deal, is it unique to a cooperative or is this something that that other groups of organizations, companies, agencies could pull off? Well, I have I certainly have not seen another deal like this. It doesn't mean they're not out there. I haven't heard about them yet. If you've got one, tell me about it. But um, you know, Organic Valley is a is a certified B Corp, right? So they're they're they've been focused on trying to be more sustainable for a while. They've actually made investments in wind power, right? In fact, the um, the municipal agency involved in this deal is not a new partner for the for Organic Valley. They they were actually involved in the wind project that Organic Valley helped bring online uh, a few years ago, five about five years ago. Um, the other partner in that was the Gunderson Health Systems, right in La Crosse, Wisconsin, which we've written about as well. But those two companies got together to to help that wind project. As far as you know, the, the Organic Valley has to be careful, right? So what they need to do is focus on their headquarters operations. Um, and that's what they're doing with this particular project, the, 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 if you will, the power that's being offset or, or brought online. And, and uh, as a result of it is, 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 is accommodating their power. Um, they've helped at the local level, their farmers, like they, they've done work on biodiesel in, 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 the, in, the, in the past. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see some of these projects come online in places where their farmers are based. Like they were mentioned some places in the Northeast as possibilities as they expand the capacity. This first phase is 13 megawatts. They could do another 17 megawatts, maybe not on this particular um, grid, actually. It might be elsewhere, maybe to support like regions where they have have, uh, a lot of farmers. So I haven't heard of another one like this. It's a very creative, I I, I thought it was a very creative approach to, to, uh, to this problem. Interesting stuff. Uh, also interesting this week was a piece we ran um, from Marsh, uh, one of the Marsh McLennan companies, called "What 2017 Taught Businesses About Disaster Management." Now we're only uh, five six of the way through the uh, the year, but we've seen plenty of disasters uh, named Harvey and Irma, Typhoon Hato, uh, earthquakes in Mexico, and lots of stuff all over the world, and that didn't get into the droughts yet. But what was interesting about this is based on a survey that was done that only not, even, not quite a third, 31% of, uh, of risk managers are um, rethinking their emergency response plans as a result of this year's catastrophes. Um, and that, you know, companies still look more at, at almost twice as many companies look at insurance coverage uh, challenges relative to risks 
as a bigger risk than supply chain resiliency. In other words, keeping things going during these uh, catastrophic uh, events. Um, so I think there's a you know as we get into more climate related or climate enhanced storms, so I'm surprised that that it still hasn't impacted enough companies enough uh, significantly enough that they're still um, concerned. Just you know, four out of five companies don't haven't prioritized supply chain resiliency, you know, based on risks that they're seeing uh, increase. That was actually the finding that really jumped out for me as well. The um that they're not thinking about that part of their business continuity plan that you know, it just sort of seemed like a big oversight to me. However, the rest of the survey didn't surprise me. Um, you know, in my past life as a, as a reporter really focused on data centers and, and IT issues, I mean, this is like just a classic. People don't worry about it until something happens and they worry about it a little bit and then they kind of forget about it. It's like they, they do a plan, then they put the plan away and they don't practice against it. They don't follow up on it and update it and so forth. And it just, it's just sort of, uh, you're hearing me sigh, it's sort of a classic business continuity challenge and oversight is, is um, people don't worry about it until it isn't working. And I don't know, maybe there's so many concentrated this year that, that it'll change things, but um, I don't know. Well, it doesn't look that way. I mean, but here's another part of the survey that said that Natural disasters ranked seventh in uh, critical risk for an organization after cyber attacks, regulations, talent availability, technology change, customer demands, and competitor pressures. Um, and then comes natural disasters. So this, uh, I guess, things need to get much worse before it people start paying attention. Um, and, you know, I mean, th these may be cold, hard business calculations where you factor in the downtime and you hopefully build for resiliency uh, as, as these uh, disruptions come. And maybe it's a cold, as I said, calculated business decision. Uh, it just seems a little short-sighted. Yep. I don't really have anything else to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on from that happy moment um, to uh, something a little lighter and kind of cooler, which is uh, a column that, that we de debuted that uh, you're going to be doing, Heather, called Breakthroughs. And um, one of the things I billboarded at the top of the show, an edible package that will make you reconsider seaweed. <laughs> I'm <laughs> not sure I've considered seaweed all that much in the first place, but but tell us. Okay, you you eat seaweed a lot. I know you're a sushi lover. You That's have true. sushi often. That's true, but not yep. is packaging. So no, no. So I mean, this is one of those classic, of course, um, kind of uh, breakthroughs, if you will. Um, but there's a company out of Indonesia called Evoware. And they are experimenting with seaweed packaging. That is, um, it can be either biodegradable or edible. So um, it, they're testing various applications with dry, sort of dry items, um, tea or instant noodles and so forth. So you take this, this package and you just throw it into the water and, or the liquid and um, boom, it dissolves and it's gone. The biodegradable side, they are exploring, you know, sort of things like little mini soaps and so forth, which, you know, you're not going to eat necessarily that package, but it could dissolve in your shower. You know, you just, you know, have, especially if you think about hotels, you know, all the paper wrappings and, and so forth that um, are on soaps and hotels and, um, you know, and used often. So the 
the sort of inspiration if this for, for this, if you will, is the fact that seaweed is is very plentiful um, in, in in particular um, in places like Indonesia. So this company saw a need to help the farmers, and they thought, "Ooh, let's explore with um, you know how to use this as a as a packaging material." So piloting, they're piloting it with waffles. Um, there isn't a whole lot of um, there are a whole lot of customers that they can announce yet, but they're very creative. And um, there's 21 species of high protein seaweed used pretty much every day in Japan. So it it's not such an unusual uh, idea if you think about it. No, and it's very nutritious. I mean, it's got seaweed. As I recall, it has calcium, magnesium, potassium, copper, iron. I don't know about protein, but uh, high iodine content, particularly some of the brown algae varieties. Um, maybe it's got protein as well, but it is, you know, vitamins A and C and all kinds of good things. So, um, but but let's talk about this, the bigger picture of breakthroughs. I mean, um, what are you going to be covering in this? So I, you know, it's, it's a challenge to pick the one thing, if you will, um, in an area, because as I, as I try to sort through, you know, I, I, I look at the the companies that are getting some notoriety for their idea, whether it's, and, and usually it's good notoriety, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, they're just a, a customer trying it out um, or so forth. But rather than products, we're, we're trying to look at ideas or scientific breakthroughs that could inspire a material change or uh, a, a process change, if you will, that, that, that could help a company combat climate change. So the, the first, we talked, I think we talked about the first technology that I focused on, which was this direct air capture of carbon dioxide. So sucking it out of the air, you know, how, how, how can you scale that and so forth. So for me, it's kind of a gut thing, but I'll be looking a lot at materials. Um, I've got a piece queued up for the near future that's um, borrowing principles of biomimicry to um, basically absorb water and distill it out of the air. It captures water from fog, and they're going to look at how they might do this from humidity. And, and um, they just want to... Uh, a prize that we wrote about a couple a couple of weeks ago, and um, you know I'm going to be focusing on them in an upcoming issue as well. So these are innovations that are out of the lab and coming into the marketplace, right? They're just out of the lab um, and and coming into the marketplace. They're not necessarily a consumer product, although we are going to. Uh, I have something uh, along the lines of a, a CRISPR technology that can actually turn. Uh, pollution into oxygen and it's like one of those little um now yeah <laughs> so anyway so it uh, just things that are unusual things that that represent creative creativity um and i i would say the one commonality is that these folks are not um they're not stuck on their one idea if someone comes to them and says yeah you know it's not going to work for this but maybe it'll work for that they're open to that and i love that about these these entrepreneurs everyone i've talked to is kind of stumbled about uh, across their idea by accident or they've stumbled across an application by accident and i i think that's an important thread that you'll see in these in these stories great well we'll look forward to what's next and uh if you've got an innovation that's out of the lab and into the market that's worth writing about let us know 350 at greenbiz.com Hi, it's Joel again. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll check out Center Stage, our new podcast featuring live interviews from GreenBiz events. You'll find conversations with notables like Paul Hawken, Annie Leonard, Janet Napolitano, and executives from a wide range of companies. Check it out. Go to greenbiz.com slash center stage or wherever you get your podcasts.
cities across the United States are moving proactively to prepare for next-generation transportation infrastructure that can accommodate everything from ride-sharing services to electric vehicles to self-driving cars and buses. Boston is among the front-runners. Earlier this year, it issued a comprehensive vision called Go Boston 2030. Among some of the aspirational targets, a one-third increase in the number of citizens that use public transit. The city also aims to cut the number of cars driven by solitary occupants in half. What does it take to reach these sorts of goals? Here to chat with GreenBiz 350 about the digital infrastructure that will be necessary to support Boston's shared mobility plans is the city's chief innovation officer, Yasha Franklin-Hodge. Yasha, thank you for joining us today on 350. Oh, so glad to be here. So we had a chance to chat a little earlier this fall at the uh, Verge conference. Uh, We didn't chat about this one thing, though. I wanted to find out a little bit more about the impetus for the Go Boston 2030 vision. Like, Can you share a little bit of the backstory on that? And then we'll dive into the the conversation about what's going to take. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Go Boston really came about as part of a larger consideration of what the future of Boston is going to be. Um, we are growing uh, as a city, and we're growing pretty rapidly. Um, since uh, the uh, last census in 2010, uh, the city has added uh, uh, almost 60,000 residents, um, and we're seeing just tremendous demand for um, for new housing, for new businesses looking for office space. Uh, and so we've done a lot of work to accommodate that demand, but going along with that kind of growth is uh, a tremendous amount of strain on our transportation infrastructure. And so Go Boston 2030 was really an opportunity for us to take that step back and say, okay, if we're going to keep growing, if we're going to keep making these big investments in housing and trying to attract businesses to Boston, how do we build out a transportation infrastructure that can effectively serve all of these new residents and businesses. Um, And so this plan, which was uh, done with an enormous amount of community engagement, uh, there were tens of thousands of city residents who participated in one fashion or another in crafting this plan, was really our attempt to chart that course for the future, to think about uh, both accommodating growth, but also some of the other goals that we have around climate sustainability, around improved safety within our transportation system around the ways in which transportation can be a vehicle for economic opportunity um, and to synthesize all those things together into a document that would help guide the path forward uh, over the next decades ahead. I noticed that one of the primary goals is to make all of Boston's neighborhoods, quote, interconnected, end quote. I love that word. Um, what technology investments will be required? Like, I don't know what that means exactly. What, what, what does that mean from a technology standpoint? Sure. Well, a lot of interconnection for us is really about physical interconnection, making sure that people who live uh, in a neighborhood can reach job centers in a convenient way, uh, making sure that transportation doesn't become the barrier that separates uh, a person from economic or educational opportunity. But I think technology is going to play an important role in that interconnection. 
Um, we're thinking about ways in which technology can help us better optimize the road system as it exists today. So things like improved signaling uh, and traffic signaling control. Um, we're thinking about the way that technology can be helpful in encouraging the use and utility of public transit. Uh, are there things that we can do to make data more available to help people do trip planning on the system that exists today? Are there ways that we can use data about where people are living, where they're traveling to to help us plan future investments into that transportation system. Uh, and then we're looking at issues like, you know, as people, as cities and people become more multimodal uh, with the rise of services like Lyft and Uber, with the, um, you know, increase in use of bike sharing services, as we try to encourage public transit use, are there ways that we can create tools, whether it's a mobile app or a service that helps people string together the different modes that are available in to the city to create a convenient, safe, and affordable uh, transportation option for them. So we're looking at how all of these, um, the, how technology can act almost as a glue uh, to stitch together the various pieces of the larger transportation infrastructure uh, in people's lives. What sort of technology, though? Like when you when you when you mentioned data, so where does that data come from? Does it come from sensors or or what? Yeah, a lot of different places, and I think a lot of it is still to be determined. Um, we've done some really interesting experimentation with sensor systems. We did a pilot project with Verizon last year uh, that involved uh, cameras in the public right-of-way and video analytics to look at the uh, potential impact on road safety if we had better data about how users behave at a given intersection. Where is there speeding? Where is there double parking? Where is there jaywalking? Uh, so that was a really interesting project to help us understand the capabilities of some of the technology that's out there right now. Uh, we have a data sharing partnership with Uber that gives us a lot of useful information about uh, where cars, uh, where Uber services are being used in the city, where people are going, uh, and that helps us think about planning for some of the gaps that might exist in the transportation system. Uh, we're able to capture data now from uh, not only our transit system, but also our bike share system. We're thinking about how we can analyze that to help us make smarter decisions about where to invest in bicycle infrastructure and how to think about a service like bike share as part of the larger network of transportation. Transportation uh, systems, um, and we are uh, thinking about where uh, we, as a city, could potentially provide uh, something valuable. I, I mentioned, you know, earlier the idea of stitching together multiple modes. You know, we're experimenting with ideas like a single app that would let you plan a trip and pay for a trip across multiple modes of transportation. That's not something that really exists today. Um, right now, if you uh, you know, take a uh, in the morning if you take a bike share to the train station, take the train into the into your job, and then in the evening take uh, a lift home. Uh, those are three separate services, three separate planning apps, three separate payment models. What if we could bring those together in a way that was convenient for people? Potentially even offer some subsidy for uh, use of of sort of shared and public systems. Uh, you know, is that a thing that the city could do to add value to people's transportation experiences? So these. Are 
are the kinds of technological experimentations that we're uh, uh, working with right now. I think there's a lot that's still really unknown about what's happening when, and what will happen in the transportation system. But as the city, we're trying to be prepared and to really uh, challenge ourselves to not just wait for things to happen or for things to get bad, but instead to be um, trying new ideas and iterating quickly as the technology around transportation evolves. You mentioned a couple of uh, companies there, Verizon, Uber. What role will private sector partners play in in helping this? Is there a lot of opportunity for companies to get involved with you helping plan and test? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we as a city are, um, you know, we're not out there every day inventing new algorithms for video analysis, for example. Um, you know, so we rely on the private sector for a lot of the technology that is going to come our way uh, you know, in the city. Um, there are also a lot of private actors now who are increasingly a source of good data. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that data sharing partnership with Uber. Uh, they're out there every day with um, you know, thousands and thousands of sensors on the road in the form of phones that their drivers are carrying, uh, their customers as well. They have interesting data about demand patterns around time of day. Uh, and we think there's probably other companies that may be able to offer similar types of useful insights. You know, a company that operates a fleet of commercial vehicles, for example, uh, is probably sitting on a mountain of data around road performance, around where vehicles tend to get stuck, and uh, you know where there's an opportunity for us to maybe rethink, for example, the way that we allocate curb space to allow for a better balance between uh, personal and commercial vehicles. So. So we're very open to partnerships with commercial uh, entities, both in terms of new products and new services, but also, um, you know, thinking about how the data that uh, they may be capturing today can help us better manage the road system. And I'd say there's sort of, you know, in some ways there's a responsibility, I think, that a lot of private sector companies have in that if you are Uber or a commercial, you know, or UPS, you're dependent on this shared public infrastructure. You're dependent on the roads. You're dependent on the traffic signals. All the things that we manage, that has to work in order for your business to work. And so I think there's a mutuality of interests and also a sort of civic responsibility that comes along with being a business that, um, de- that, that depends on public roads, that you try to work with the city and work with the people who build and manage the, that, that uh, critical infrastructure structure to help make it work better for all. There's a quite a bit of attention being focused on this issue right now. And I just noticed, um, I think it was about two weeks ago, um, that uh, a new coalition of NGOs that have a sort of a stake in, in mobility and transportation issues, they issued this um, framework called the Shared Mobility Principles for Livable Cities. The final principle on their list was, quote, we support that autonomous vehicles in dense urban areas should be operated only in shared fleets, end quote. Curious, I'm not sure if you're part of um, what's going on there, and you can tell me in a moment, but uh, what do you think about that proclamation? Is that something that's on point for you guys in Boston? Yeah, I think I think we're very excited about the potential for shared mobility. I mean, there's a lot about autonomous vehicles in particular that is still not known. Um, the technology is still very new. Uh, nobody has done a large-scale commercial deployment of autonomous vehicles in, in any business model yet anywhere in the world. 
Um, so we still collectively have a lot to learn about the capabilities and limitations of the technology. Uh, we have a lot to learn about the way in which these vehicles in particular interact with the public space in a dense urban environment. Um, you know, it's a lot of the testing that's been done to date has been focused on uh, suburban environments or uh, kind of newer cities that have, you know, that are built ground up for the automobile. Um, when you look at a city like Boston or many of the older cities in the United States, you know, these are cities that have had to stretch to accommodate cars as they exist today. And they're probably going to have to stretch again for autonomous vehicles in ways that we don't fully understand yet. So we're trying to learn and trying to, um, you know, use uh, Boston as a place to pilot some of these new technologies. Um, but we also want to be thoughtful about the policy ramifications of uh, bringing in autonomy into the city. And the idea of sharing is very appealing, right? If you look in a city today, an incredible amount of land is devoted to storage of privately owned vehicles that are not in use for 90 plus percent of the time. Um, that is incredibly wasteful. We waste public streets with parking. We increase the price of housing by insisting that housing units be built with parking spaces to accommodate privately owned vehicles. Uh, and we have incredible waste, frankly, that exists in in you know, building and transporting and uh, paying for and insuring these vehicles that are largely idle. So a shared model, one in which vehicles would circulate within the city or would be garaged in central locations and then dispatched as needed, uh, has potentially a lot of um, physical benefits to the environment as well as uh, you know, benefits to just the, the character of, of the city. If you could get rid of on-street parking, the amount of land that that would free up for uh, improving experiences for active transportation users, people who walk or bike, uh, the number of places you could put an express bus lane in, those would, those would increase dramatically. So uh, I think we're very optimistic about the potential of sharing. I don't think we've, we're not at the point yet where we think it's sensible to write a, a regulatory scheme around it but um, we will certainly be working towards a model that can uh, provide broad public benefit and uh, if we can move away from private vehicle ownership as the dominant form of mobility, I think that would have huge positive implications. Yasha, one final question. You know, the resilience seems to be a dominant theme for many of the cities um, around the United States and actually around the world. Does your mobility plan support that idea? Like, does it make Boston more resilient? You, you just mentioned some of the infrastructure um, changes that might come about as, as, a, as a result. Does it also support that theme? Yeah, I think in, in two ways it does. I mean, one is that um, transportation-related emissions are a a significant contributor to global climate change. And we in Boston believe that we need to do our part to curb transportation-related, actually to curb all emissions that are contributing to, to climate change, uh, especially in an era when we have uh, a federal government that is hostile to science and hostile to the reality of what's happening to our planet. So this, you know, we are, are thinking about our transportation plan as, um, you know, a, a commitment 
commitment in part to uh, become a more sustainable city in the sense of being able to um, lower our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, but we also think there's some interesting opportunities that exist between in, in this in the resiliency space because as a coastal city, we are uh, we know we are going to be disproportionately affected by uh, climate change, especially in the form of water and water management. And so as we start to build new infrastructure and upgrade the existing infrastructure, we're building with resilience in mind. You know, where can we raise the height of a roadway by five feet in order to create a natural flood barrier? How can we think about uh, the permeability of our surfaces as a way to uh, improve our ability to uh, manage through large storm events? Um, taking a large surface, impermeable surface parking lot and turning that into uh, more green infrastructure or dual purpose infrastructure uh, has both uh, benefits in uh, the quality of uh, the physical space and the addition of green space, but also uh, may help us uh, survive a, a major storm that dumps an enormous amount of water on the city. So it's still early uh, in the planning efforts for this, but um, we think that transportation, because of its impact on land use, because of its impact on greenhouse gas emissions, is going to be a critical part of our broader climate strategy in Boston. Yasha, thanks for joining us on 350. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for uh, having me here and for the great question. One of the illustrious visitors to the Green Biz office this week was Mike Wallace, an old friend of mine who is uh, managing director of Brown Flynn, a consultancy based in Cleveland. But uh, more to the point, is really one of the go-to experts on ESG environmental social governance data and how it's being used in the marketplace, helping companies and investors and others make sense of it. Um, Mike, Chris, all welcome to uh, Green Biz. Thanks very much, Joel. It's an honor to be here inside of your four walls, and I appreciate the, the opportunity to talk to you. Well, we don't let everyone inside the inner sanctum, but here you are. So, like I said, we go way back. Um, this whole world of ESG is just seems to be taking off. Our, from our vantage point, it, just, it, it feels like it's gone from the fringe of socially responsible investing into the mainstream where you've got the Morning Stars and the Moody's and others that are now really, really paying attention. Is that really what's going on? I would say most definitely. We're seeing a, a real push by the mainstream financial institutions talking about big mainstream asset management firms like BlackRock, State Street, uh, BNY Mellon, Northern Trust, um, definitely stepping in in a big and heavy way. We're seeing some of the ESG research firms being acquired by some of the larger traditional ratings firms like S&P buying True Cost. We just was I was just with Moody's in Mexico City at a WBCST meeting, and so to have Moody's on the stage, who's a competitor or peer to Standard & Poor's, talking about their ESG integration is yet another indication of how mature our field is getting. On one hand, that's a good thing for those chief sustainability officers out there because it's getting serious, it's finally getting the attention it deserves, but also it makes it more important that you have your data correct because some real serious analysts are now looking at your ESG information. Why now? What's going on that this has suddenly become a thing? 
I think it's a combination of the reporting frameworks that are out there are finally helping companies really dive into this and look at material issues. You know, so you had to give credit to GRI, been around for 20 years, telling companies report on material topics and explain why they're material. And then you've got the likes of SASB coming up and reinforcing that from a very, you know, strong investor point of view, saying basically, yes, these things should be in your 10K and you should talk about why they're material and how you're managing them. Um, and then you see the various questions that come from the, some of these big ESG research firms like Rubico Sam, like MSCI, like Sustainalytics, et cetera. They, too, reinforce that materiality topic. So we all f- it all feels like not only just in the U.S., but globally, the idea of material ESG issues is finally taking hold. Is this primarily about climate or is this about other kinds of risks as well? Or what's driving this? Well, I think climate has certainly caught the attention of a lot of people over the last few years and before that even, but um, seeing climate disclosure show up in the annual regulated financial reports of global companies suddenly makes people say, wow, if they can identify this as material and put it in a regulated financial document, why can't this other competitor do the same thing? And so what I think a lot of companies don't realize is that investors or other stakeholders, when they look at these issues, they don't look at one single company. They look at the entire peer group. They're looking at an entire industry. And so they're looking at things and seeing whether or not the company has a human rights policy. Yeah, of course you want to buy from or buy stock in a company that has a human rights policy. But how do you find that information? Well, you don't find it unless the company's disclosed it. And so now for you and me and anybody else with a Bloomberg terminal, we can go in there and see that kind of information. That's a binary yes or no. But we can also see how many tons of greenhouse gases have been emitted for the year. And so those numbers are there now for us to take access to. And you can compare them from company to company. One of the things that I think is really interesting is Moody's. Uh, the credit rating firm is now starting to incorporate climate risk into its credit ratings. Uh, it seems to me that when climate policies and strategies and other sustainability commitments affect the cost of money, that that's kind of a game changer. I, to- I would totally agree. I mean... The same way that our personal credit scores affect the way that we access money or get a mortgage for a house, it's the exact same way that it plays out for corporations. So when your treasurer goes to the bond market and says, here's all my information, I'm credit worthy, give me a good credit score rating so I can get a good rate from the bank who's going to lend to me. It's the same thing that we go through to get a mortgage on a house, right? So now someone like Moody's is saying, and S&P is saying the same thing, We are looking at ESG-related metrics when we assess you on your credit worthiness. Are you going to be there in 5, 10, 15, 50 years to pay me back or to pay the markets back? Because I'm S&P or Moody's, and I'm putting my name on the line by saying your credit worthiness. And are you vulnerable to climate more so than other companies and your peers, and does that affect how you – your ability to repay me for, for that loan? You know, we've been hearing for such a long time, and you've been in the middle of this conversation uh, for uh, even longer, Mike, that the survey fatigue and the the companies that just spend a lot of time filling out surveys, not just for investors uh, and rating companies, but also for uh, their customers, the Walmarts and, and others of the world, and wondering a lot, does this, are these things even read, does this even... Is this even necessary? Is this just make work for my department? Um, it sounds like this stuff actually is having material meaning to uh, investors and others, and therefore to the companies themselves. 
Oh, I would say most definitely. And I think, you know, what we find with the clients that we work with, we're primarily working with publicly traded companies or what are also called issuers. This is, they're the ones that issue their stock to the marketplace and they get asked questions. Many of these companies feel a certain level of frustration and confusion because there's a morass of frameworks out there, you know, SASB, GRI, IRC, uh, the Task Force on Climate Disclosure now, um, a variety of things, GRESB, if you're a real estate firm, or GRESB, if you want to call it that. But for if you're a company, you've got to figure out this whole uh, patchwork quilt. But literally, when you dig into it like we do, there's a, a Prado's Law plays out. 80% of it's overlap. They're not asking a bunch of different questions. They've actually thought through the same thing. Like, if you're a company doing this kind of activity, you should report on X, Y, and Z. So that's one thing is to be aware of. You probably have a lot of this information already at your arm's length because of environment, health, and safety professionals that have been gathering a lot of this metric, this data for a while. You're probably going to need human resources because they're going to have some of the social information you're going to want, diversity in the workforce, et cetera. You're going to definitely want to talk to general counsel or the corporate secretary because they're going to have the governance answers you want. And what you'll notice is that responding to things like Rubico Sam actually gives you a new ability to respond to other things. And responding to Rubico Sam allows you to then get your team comfortable with being transparent on these issues. Then you get your team to the level of actually putting this stuff on your website. When it goes on your website, then you're really being transparent on these ESG metrics and people like Bloomberg pick it up. Suddenly, if the Bloomberg gets it, it ripples through the market in a good way for you because they're selling their information and your information to hundreds of thousands of, of subscribers. So many of the other ratings firms that are judging you, they're looking for public disclosure, but they're also subscribing to entities like Bloomberg and, and some others out there. Well, don't stop that reporting yet, folks. There's lots of good uses for that, and it sounds like uh, it's going to be required even more and more of companies. Mike Wallace, uh, Managing Director of Brown Flynn, uh, thanks for stopping by. Uh, come back and see us again next time you're in the Bay Area. Love to. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, check out the link for our new podcast center stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And thanks as always to GreenBiz 350 director Stephanie Joyce and GreenBiz managing editor Elsa Wenzel. We'll be back next week for episode 100, another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.